0: This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to Care Less, Do More. My name is Michelle Parker, your host of the show, and it is an honor to have this space and your time. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We spoke a lot about process and getting to where you want to be, which I think can be inspiring to hear from different people of different walks of life. Before we hit play, I want to thank Anon Optics for supporting the show. Anon makes incredible products, be that goggles, helmets, integrated face masks, and now sunglasses. They're innovative in the way that they create, and if you ask me, the product is the very best. Anon goggles offer a full range of lens tints, unique frame designs, and fog-free performance for superior clarity in any condition, and I will second that. Anon revolutionizes the performance of snow goggles with exclusive features like the Magnetech Quick Change Magnetic Lens System. It is the fastest lens changing system on the market, hands down. Um, the MFI Magnetic Face Mask integration, which is basically a face mask that magnetically connects to your goggles and Perceive Lens Technology. Every Anon goggle is co-developed with Anon helmets and face masks for perfectly integrated fit that offers comfort you can feel and protection you can trust. My guest on the show today is someone very, very important in my life. Born in New England, the ties between art and sport have long been central to his work. His camera has taken him all over the world to mountain ranges across the globe, working his way up the ranks of the editorial world in snowboarding during his early career. While holding titles such as Senior Photographer at Snowboarder Magazine and Staff Photographer for Burton Snowboards, his craft behind the lens has continued to develop as his passion has taken him further into the backcountry. He started his own agency, shot too many covers to count, directed or produced movies such as Time, Joy, Burton's One World, and our current project that is yet to be released titled Continuum with Arcteryx. His name is Aaron Blatt my best friend, partner, and my absolute favorite photographer ever. Welcome to Care Less, Do More, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: (laughs) Real beaming intro, geez. (laughs)
0: Um, Well, where do we start? I think we should start about talking about your upbringing in Boston.
1: Boston. I can't say I'm actually from Boston because it's right outside of Boston, so people from actual Boston would get pissed, but... It was sweet growing up in Massachusetts, and I don't know, it was so green. I was just back there last week, so I can remember everything pretty easy, but bunch of good coastline there, and lakes, and really green trees that are completely different than the West Coast trees, and good little mountains, and a real sporty snowboard culture, die Hard and... Yeah, they really mean it when they go snowboarding back there, which I really appreciate.
0: Yeah, how did you start snowboarding?
1: I started skiing when I was, I don't know, three or four years old. My parents were really into it. Um, They had lived in New York City and, yeah, worked in the World Trade Centers, and they were tech people that kind of escaped the city and moved up to the country, uh, up in Mass uh, in the in the mid 80s and they would go up to Vermont and New Hampshire and my mom got my dad skiing all kinds of resorts up there and yeah they would go on vacation once a year up to either Maine or Vermont usually um, to one of the big mountains up there and uh, take five days and go ski and they kind of brought me into that whole Um, ritual and yeah so I would start skiing during those weeks and then eventually we went up to Stowe in Vermont where now I realize in like 92 93 was probably such an important time during east coast snowboarding and snowboarding in general and I remember just seeing kind of like really rowdy older dudes like riding down the hill on snowboards and it was all I could think about and all I wanted to do and I think around the same time a shop went in at Neshoba Valley which was kind of like my backyard ski hill and they were they were a k2 shop and they had all these epic posters of Chris Inglesman and and that era of of riders I think yeah a few others that were epic and I, I just remember going into that shop and seeing the catalogs and just getting super invested in knowing that that would be a part of my life. And I would draw pictures of people doing methods and kind of everything under the sun had to do with getting into snowboarding. So when I was six, I got my first Nidecker 125 uh, at some ski sale in New Hampshire, used board and took it from there and never really skied since. (laughs) <laughs> sorry about it
0: yes but i'm gonna get you on skis one day that's a goal just try it out debatable <laughs> uh, anyways um your father followed suit too right he started snowboarding pretty yeah, soon after that he
1: was he kept skiing my mom was from a sportier upbringing and she really got him hiking and skiing and all that stuff but then he took it and ran with it and he had these old Like I can see him right now, these like silver Rossignols that he was skiing on. I think that was probably his last pair of skis, straight cut, and he was just going too fast. He would like, he would fall and then like end up on his back and not be able to get up. I guess maybe he was never like the dopest skier, but (laughs) I remember my mom saying that he looked like a bug that was like on his back and like couldn't get up. And in order to get away from being the bug, I think he thought it might be sweet to slow down a bit and learn something new. So he got a snowboard, probably when I was thirteen or fourteen, and we would ride together a bunch and still do, which is sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, love he that came description out description of him. <laughs> yeah, the bug was good. He came out here last year and rode Palisades with us a bit and he did the bug a couple times probably. <laughs> in no. softer snow.
0: He's on it. He's yeah. on it. He has a split board now too.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a Brian Agucci split and like a bunch of yeah, yeah, a bunch of good gear for that. I think he goes to Wachusett in his sweatpants early mornings and skims up, the, up mountain. the mountain on the groomers and gets first tracks. I love it's that. Good, yeah,
0: yeah. When I hang out with him, it seems so obvious how influenced he is by what you have done and what you've brought into his life too, between snowboarding and biking and he is so truly invested in those two sports. Like he's into it. He, he knows who's who and, and I don't know, his passion is like, is there. It's really, it's really awesome.
1: Yeah. The influence goes both ways for sure. But he, he is invested in those sports and he's got his favorite riders and he watches all the contests and natural selection and all that stuff. So it's, it's cool to see him get to meet those people too here and there. And it's like, it's really funny, like, stepping back and listening to him have, like, a conversation with, like, Mickle over a beer. And he, like, knows so much about him and shit. I'm like, damn, that's so... That's cool that he's watching. I like it. Yeah. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And what would you say, like, shaped your youth?
1: Sport. I, all I wanted to do was be outside and ride my bikes. Like, the the biking and the snowboarding was everything. And to a point where it it had to be like it had to be a reward for doing okay in school cuz i would i just didn't care about school at all like that was the last place i wanted to be and the last thing i wanted to do i couldn't compute in my head that it made sense to do the same homework that 30 other kids in the class were doing like where does that get anyone to just write the right answers on the same paper and hope they're right like it it just didn't seem productive to me until it was pitched to me that, like, that's real-world shit. Like, if you if you are able to get that done, then you can do this stuff. But this stuff isn't easy to get into. It's not cheap to get into by any means. And we didn't necessarily have, like, all the means in the world to do that kind of stuff. We were doing fine. But, like, once I understood that that was why my parents were going to work and hustling and doing their thing so that they could get that five days up at... Sugarbush or Stowe in the wintertime back when tickets were $49 probably or less like yeah then then I started to understand and things started to click and I found what I liked about I won't say what I found what I liked about academics or anything but yeah sport those two I won't even say sport like those two lifestyles drove me that's what that was everything Mm if I could go out and ride.
0: Do you think you just had like a different way of learning
1: possibly the school system i'm the school system i was in was apparently super uh competitive like there was a lot of drive to get into advanced placement classes and yeah classes i was never gonna end up in per se but they did have really good art programs in my opinion and a good photo lab at the high school and like there was things I could latch on to that I would be like, yeah, I understand this. Like if you're not to drive on that, like homework or repetition thing, but like, yeah, anything that I had to do that I couldn't see a benefit to either the world or to myself or whatever from like, if it was busy work and still to this day, if it's busy work, I'm out. Like it just is painful for me to do things that seem repetitious or unnecessary. And I've tried to overcome some of that, but yeah, as a kid, it was like, honestly, it was to a point where like, I, I couldn't go to school for a little while. Like I was seeing therapists for it. Like we were figuring out what was wrong with me. And like, it was really hard for probably a couple years. And then, I don't know. I remember walking up the hill on my street with my mom at some point, and they probably went through hell with all of this. Cause I was like, suddenly like not able to do these tasks like where's this kid gonna end up like it wasn't a good scene but yeah everything clicked because it was like if you do this if you can like excel here then you can pursue whatever you want and you can like get more time in the mountains or whatever it might be and as that came into my peripheral and became something of substance in my life then there suddenly was purpose to all of that it just wasn't necessarily portrayed to me that way in that maybe more competitive academic system. I didn't give a damn whether I was in AP math. I cared to go to sit or go to my dirt jumps or whatever it was that I wanted to do.
0: Mm-hmm. I always think about that when I like observe your process in life and you come at things with such this creative mind that I feel like maybe that was your style of learning or like being this really incredibly creative, artistically driven individual, like your process is different than mine. And I've learned to like really respect that and I've learned to really learn from that too. Like it inspires me, the way that you do things versus myself or like a lot of folk that I know too. Um, I think it's really cool and I think that that's something that should be taken into consideration like in schools and in work as well like when I mean because for me as an athlete too like we have to pitch our projects and we have to like come up with this creative way to pitch our projects and that happens in the springtime but that's when like my season's ending and I find I need like a little bit of rest and like time to I don't know develop that like creative urge again I guess and get into it more um yeah so i don't know i think creative creative minds have a different process sometimes
1: i think that's true and i think that it's like a huge privilege to be able to find yourself in an environment that rewards that and i don't know i'll frequently think especially during like tax season or when you have to figure out your individual health plan with insurance or whatever it might be that like the world's not really set up for like the creative freelancer like you're sort of swimming upstream at all times because society's set up in the way that it is and i don't blame society for that like i'm not i'm not bummed on that i think the people that probably write those proverbial rule books were probably using a different side of the brain than Creative people tend to tap into, and I think that's fine. Um, but I think that on, yeah, on an academic or a junior high or high school level, like having access to a program that's gonna reward creativity is probably something that is a huge privilege in this world. And then beyond that, like getting to access a world where creativity is rewarded in the professional environment is a privilege that's earned in a fucking hard way. And I don't know. I, I respect that when people can rise to a point where they can afford to pay that individual health plan or they can afford to get a CPA to do their taxes because they're not able to do that themselves or whatever it might be. Like a means to rise into like being able to be successful in that freelance environment is, yeah you're swimming upstream that's that's like all I can come back to on that Mm -hmm. but that was my first taste of it as a kid for sure it's like not like nothing nothing's nothing's making sense to me at all and I still do that like I still like yeah I don't know I can sit in front of a computer and make a task take forever because it's just not adding up but yeah that's just a that those are like lessons you learn in life as someone that's going to take a different path and hustling through that shit is everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned that in school you had a photography class. Did you take that in high school?
1: Yeah, I took a few I took a few photo courses, but I wasn't ever that wasn't my aim at all. Like it was just fun to shoot photos. It's fun to frame something up and and shoot it. Like I like collecting those individual moments or whatever it's hard to like talk about photography in that way without being super cliche but but my drive was more on the design side like I really cared a lot about everything from color theory to composition to how to monetize my skills with adobe products or whatever it might have been and I was into every type of that like I was taking that's where I could find my way into, like, more advanced drawing classes or whatever it might have been that was, like, on that level. Like, I saw pretty early on that there was a way to monetize that stuff. And and I was never just, like, I was never going to be a fine artist or anything like that. I didn't – I I appreciated all of that, and I studied art history, and I cared a lot about that. But there was always some draw to – like, the ads that I was seeing in the magazines. I knew there were people behind that. I knew there were people behind, like, you'd crack a magazine in the late 90s, early 2000s, and those Oakley campaigns that would come up always come to mind when I'm talking about this or thinking about this. Like, that shit hit heavier than any class was gonna hit. Like, you'd crack the mag and see... You remember like the the machine like hitting the sunglass or whatever it was? Like it was just this more like raw, like really striking imagery. And that shit mattered to me. And I wanted to go there. Cause I knew I wasn't gonna, I don't know, I knew I wasn't gonna get into like the world that we're living in now with my like snowboarding or biking skill set. I had a good time, but I I knew pretty early on that that wasn't my path.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, at what point did you decide? that, like, photography was your path?
1: Uh, I sorted out, so I finished up high school, like, past, I guess, (laughs) like, which is always funny, because I I know, like, a lot of my younger snowboard friends that have taken a different career path or whatever early on, like, getting that GED is a huge accomplishment for those (laughs) kids. And I think like, I don't know, like I can relate because there was a time when it didn't look like that was going to happen for me for a a brief moment. And yeah, I got through that, applied to schools. I got, I had a, I, I had like a good portfolio, like in art world when you're trying to get into schools for design or art or whatever, like your book is important. And at that time, I wonder if this has changed, but it was like this tactile thing. Like it was something you would create and like some people would take this like this route and go into Boston and like get these finely printed pieces of their, yeah, maybe more like dialed art or whatever. But like I was, I was down for like bookbinding and like I had clocked into some like Japanese, uh, stab bound stuff. So I would take these like, like, I think it was called an awl. It's like this really sharp, uh, kind of thing that you would see in a toolbox and yeah, stab through a bunch of paper and then like kind of sew it all together. But I had this tidy portfolio that was all a bit of photography work, a bit of design work and a bit of illustration probably. And that got me like, not like full rides or anything, but scholarships to options to like a couple schools. One of them was University of Hartford in Connecticut, I think, which was right near RISD, which is like the big like that was like a really important design school especially on the east coast and there were people kind of in that universe that were living in Connecticut and I, I went down there for a meeting and I remember whoever I talked to was like some admissions person that was like a I don't know he had a good eye and we were cruising through my portfolio and he was like it's it's this it's these layers like there was some design piece that I did that had like like some type of layers to it. And he's like, that's what'll make the difference. Like, I, I don't know, it always stuck with me. And I think about it when I shoot sometimes, like if you're up at hood looking back down at all those layers or whatever, I don't know. It's not something I'm like constantly thinking about, but it's like those little things that you hear. But either way, that was one place I went and had like an interview at, and then I ended up going up to Vermont, to Champlain. And that's where, that's where like things clicked for me on a design front where I was like, oh, I can... I don't know there was all kinds of uh professors there that were so good at articulating the things that I was like starting to latch on to again with like color theory and composition which I'm totally down to dive into further but like I completely fell in love with that shit and the science behind it and everything but I also continued on the photography courses and I was always shooting like I was always shooting whether it was like straight up like uh the little cvs like the cameras you get at the pharmacy the disposable cameras i was shooting those to just like shoot photos of our snowboarding or biking to like see how big the air was or whatever you know (laughs) yeah you'd like get the frame back and you could be like oh dude my like shitty tail grab was like double overhead on like this one air and like that meant something and it was strictly to see how high it was there was no color theory or composition in those those (laughs) scans but like or they weren't even scans those five by sevens that you'd get back but like i don't know then that's like my grandfather had like a digital camera that had a floppy disk that you put in it like this old sony digital camera and like i can't even imagine what size those files were but he was like those those two were super interesting. I'm down to rap about that for sure cuz that was actually some influence too, but like it was clear that digital cameras were going to start to like come into play cuz I would see this like floppy disk camera after going out to visit them and then and then like a professor would have a digital camera or something like that and you'd mess around with that, but I don't know. That stuff was like really coming into play heavy. I got some Nikon and was shooting my buddies like snowboarding at the resort and fairly quickly it seemed that i like there was a subculture going on and like there was a couple photographers that were in my peripheral that were living in vermont that i was like oh this is a whole this is a whole avenue like you could you could end up like really seeing the world with this like there was a spark there that i saw and i was like okay this design thing's super fun and i'm into it and i could see that being a future and i would I don't know where I'd be if I took that path but I also like saw what Cole Bearish and Blotto and these people on the east coast were doing globally and like started to pick up on like that that was that could be a reality like it was totally possible for someone from the east coast to sort that out and like see what was going down over at North Star or whatever because that was it at the time I was like damn, like, maybe I can go snowboard on the West Coast. Because I never had. Like, that wasn't something that was possible. We weren't getting on planes to go skiing and snowboarding. We were, yeah, going to Sugarloaf and <laughs> and Stowe. And Sugarbush was, like, a big... Those trips were huge.
0: Yeah. yeah. How did your grandparents influence you?
1: They were just, like... They were super inspiring people, but I didn't realize, you know, your world is small when you're young, but we'd fly out. They were school teachers in New York and they, they had just done a really good job at, I don't know, playing the system to set themselves up for success. And they were able to retire young and really travel the country. My mom has all these stories of them in like a, they, they would like trailer for a while and then they finally got into motorhomes eventually but they would like they were like national parks junkies like before i think it was as zooey as it is at those places they were like yeah rip into the grand canyon or the tetons or whatever it was and they were shooting a lot of photos i actually have all my grandfather's slides that i'm like slowly pulling through and yeah i kind of have like an epic scanner set up downstairs that i'm psyched to get into and yeah i don't know but they were shooting photos they were retired and they were like into into the process of making stuff clearly like i'd go visit their house that they finally settled in a retirement community in phoenix which at the time that whole like del web scenario i think was pretty new and they bought this epic ranch in this community full of the same epic ranch but theirs was cool and they had art from around the world in there and their books on everything under the sun that you could learn to do and that community backed up to the desert at the time they have all these old photos of them like just whooping dirt bikes out the backyard and like my mom in a cast from like a dirt bike crash which sounds crazy to me now but like that's what they were doing it was kind of wild westy And then slowly those communities expanded. And now there's a ton of suburban sprawl out there, but their house was always so cool. I'm looking at like, we have some of their epic, like mid-century furniture in our house here, but they appreciated craft. They appreciated process. And they like, yeah, my grandfather was a woodworking teacher for quite some time. And like, I don't know. He just was, he was like making their shelving units. And like, making tables and doing stuff that i find myself doing now and i imagine as i pull through those slides a little bit more having had this like epic like i don't know global career at this point where i have gotten to see all the shit i wanted to see like to some degree like i think as i pull through those slides i'm gonna find a bunch of like similarities there too because i just keep finding that in in milton and b's work i don't know Yeah. They were more epic than I realized for a lot of the time that I got to spend with them.
0: Yeah. I had the pleasure of going to Arizona to their house at one point, and there was, I mean, from macrame to like clear woodworking skill set, and then the stained glass that your grandpa did. Like, that thing is beautiful.
1: Yeah, that's the one. My uncle Lenny helped me get that. Like, always when I was a kid, like, they had this west facing door that had just like a nice, probably like two and a half by six foot space next to it that he had built this stained glass saguaro cactus. They had like an epic saguaro cactus in their front yard and I'm sure it was like a representation of that, but in stained glass. And my uncle Lenny helped me grab it from their house and like kind of package it up. And we, yeah, me and Michelle took it from there along with a few other like key items uh, after that house was gonna be gone. And yeah, that thing's on a West facing window in my house in Portland now and the sun shines through it and it rules. And I can tell that he'd be super psyched that that didn't get left by the wayside. That was not happening. No, it's a beautiful piece. Yeah. really Important.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, thank you for that. And so you went to Champlain.
1: Went to Champlain and it ruled like I, yeah, I don't know that that changed my whole trajectory because it just made the world bigger. Like I was able to see a bunch of stuff and I wasn't ready to go. I wasn't ready to go get into what I got into. Like I needed that like bridge. Cause I had sort of started to find my line and find my hustle at the end of high school. But like it was sweet to go further some of those studies. And I, I think it did help like a ton with the, with the career because I was able to learn so much more, discipline in art like there'd be classes that i was taking on typography where they would just make you like (laughs) like in a very precise way hand in homework uh that was like the perfection of the alphabet in baskerville font you know with all the serifs and everything at the right height and that detail and actually starting to care about that detail was the antithesis of what i hated in high school and junior high and then i was able to find like whoa like this is all of a sudden visual and to me it did matter that the serif on the a of baskerville was this height and it 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 couldn't be fucked with like this was very important it was critical that things were symmetrical and things were round when they should be round and you know whatever it might have been but those things did affect me drastically and to be able to find some of that discipline in the visual world was huge for me and I would never have gotten that had I just been like oh I suddenly am good at shooting photos and I can go into a career path that has that Mm -hmm. I don't know it was it was like a really important time and then I met all my I don't know I have friends that I'm still friends with that like you know we got into it through snowboarding and going to the resort and riding. But like, we were all shooting photos, whether it was my buddy Ryan Bent or Brendan McInerney, or like there was like a few of us that were working in this studio at the time that was run by Michael Seip and Rick Levinson and the lovely Jess worked there that ended up marrying Michael and... They were just, like, these super creative Vermont people that had the Burton contracts to shoot all the product. And that was my internship. I, I like, got walked into it by Ryan and Brennan. But, like, and those were my snowboard buddies, you know? Like, but they were shooting photos at this studio. And we would go down there and, like, you know, kick tires. And I would be, like, damn. Like, I, I didn't realize that places like that existed when I was living in Massachusetts and growing up. And all of a sudden, there was, like, this huge like cavernous space that no one knew about in in the city that like all these backdrops were in and they were listening to like good music and they cared about like the way that the space was set up so that when they did have to have like models in here or there or or just outsiders or have meetings or whatever like that space was made for this task and that was another eye-opening moment because there was certainly like I don't know, like, I don't think that like, the money should necessarily be talked about. But like, again, as a kid who like, came up wondering whether there was even like a possibility of being successful in the modern world. And like the way that like, that was portrayed to me as a kid, all of a sudden, there were like, these pretty much like, ex hippies or current hippies that were like, really doing well for themselves and like working in this beautiful space. And Yeah, I was so eager to stuff the backpacks full of uh, the packaging so that the pockets would puff out perfectly and they could get put on set and shot. And man, I did that for a long time and I loved it. And, And that was huge for me. Like that was like, I would watch Rick or Michael or Jess. Like there was one time when like an intern like broke a mirror in the back room or something like by accident, you know, something fell over in there and i was like oh shit like that happened and then a week later you'd start to see like the shards of the mirror like gaff tape to the end of some rigging and they were like the perfect pieces to like reflect onto like i don't know a logo on a boot or something like that off of off of a light like there were things that were happening there that were like it was like a huge learning for me to understand that what happens behind the scenes like kind of doesn't matter to some degree as long as the end product is dope and that was again like that's it that's another like that'll tie back to the theories that I was like feeling when I was not able to figure everything out because it was like this perfection or like this perfection of doing like a math problem long division whatever it is where you're like is there there's got to be other ways to do this shit like the mirror breaking and seeing that like i'll never forget seeing that on the end of the rigging with the gaff tape that was everything that shit's important yeah yeah
0: and that was probably it sounds like that was one of the first times that you were like oh this can be a livelihood and simultaneously learning as an intern and then seeking a ton of inspiration from them
1: yeah i was i was fully aware at that point that like there were a bunch of avenues where creativity was rewarded with a a life that allowed you to have a house and kids and like a full yeah, a real life or whatever. But yeah, that was definitely like the closest I had been to like the actualization of it. And then at some point Ricky Levinson like was like, Yo, uh, I have to go down and shoot the open at Stratton. Will you like will you assist? Cause I was clearly I don't know, like I was clearly into that. I was coaching snowboarding at the time. And I was shooting a ton of that just for fun. Like the kids that I was working with were excelling and I was able to shoot with them. And I think it was clear to him that I had an interest in this. And yeah, he took me to the open and we shot the open. And that was insane. Like I had been there before just to like party with friends and hang out in the mud at Stratton and go up to the pipe and see all that. But like, then I was then I was working and I was, you know, credentialed up and behind the fence and like doing the whole thing. And he, he really let me run with it. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like I was taking his cards down to the computer and loading them up. Like we were, we were suddenly like brothers in arms on that thing and we were shooting and it was so sick. Like I still remember shooting, you know, that, that was, that was an era when like, UC and Blavelt and, and Rice and I mean, and Kelly, (laughs) like, like like Kelly Clark and everybody that was like, everybody was there and it was like important. Like the, the contest was, the contest was all of snowboarding. It wasn't like the contest kids. So like, yeah, you were really able to like point a lens at people that you had seen in the magazines forever. And that was cool. And there were also like funny random people. Like I remember naming not funny random people, but like people that are still in my life, like where you're like, damn, like like, okay, when I came out here and started chilling with you, like Nikki Sletko was in the picture and I, I remember vividly like naming these files and I was like I was like, that's a cool name, like as a kid, you know? And then and then you like you come back around and it was like the open at that time was such a melting pot of everybody from all over the world. And now I'm still running into people that I had never met, but had like shot back then. Yeah. And that continued when I was shooting, you know, I shot a lot of contests for a while, but that was the first. And that was from that studio.
0: When you tell that story, I can't help but think about when we first started hanging out. I think it was like one of our first, like, Kind of real dates. It felt like one of the first. Oh, real date. Yeah, I don't know what did. I flew Damn. into Portland, and you had you had a shoot going on at the time mm-hmm. with Adidas. This is like six years ago, and uh, you had T Bird and Tanner pick me up from the airport, and I think they brought me flowers from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I was just gonna come up to Mount Hood and like kind of sidekick it for your photo shoot, but you put a camera in my hands, and you were like, you can come, like, shoot seconds, but it was at High Cascade, which there's no skiers allowed at High Cascade, so I was, like, in government camp, like, asking snowboard friends. I think I got, like, Toby Miller's snowboard kit, his, like, pants and everything, and maybe Elena gave me a board, and I, like, went up there and, like, kind of went incognito, like, I didn't really want anyone to know who I was in the High Cascade Park, and we were riding in the cat like with Sean White and like I don't even know I was trying to keep my cool though like and be not Michelle Parker the skier I was trying to be your photo assistant but we were in the high cascade park and I got to shoot like my first action frames like really kind of taking it seriously and I don't know they were like it was so fun to be there but then I remember all the all the kids like trash talking skiers and I was like oh I'm undercover. Like, I can't let him know. And then, like, I think day two or something, Nick Baden was like, Yo, aren't you Michelle Parker? And I was like, Oh, <laughs> so Because he was busted. on Red Bull at yeah. the
1: time and he knew. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. Was-
0: <laughs> And I was like, Yeah, I'm totally infiltrating the high cascade park right now as a skier, but that's cool. I'm you on a board. Yeah. You
1: and Sammy are the only skiers I know that made it into that park. Honestly. Oh, I
0: went in there a lot when I was a kid.
1: Sneak in. Oh yeah. After chased. they rake
0: the park after yeah. they rake the pipe, like I'm dropping in there for sure.
1: Did you tell Grandier about that when you went on his podcast?
0: <laughs> no, he didn't ask. He probably chased your ass. <laughs> he might have chased yeah. me. <laughs> Legendary Sammy Carlson story too. That one
1: was epic. I got yeah. to see that one of one of those firsthand and it was Sick.
0: <laughs> pretty spectacular back in the day digger wars it was um, huge
1: that shit was important yeah it was yeah
0: i mean now that we're on it like how did mount hood shape like what did you do there what that place is so important to you and it's so important to me too but what was it about it
1: i mean that was where i met everybody like you get to meet everybody there because i what i like i just hadn't had that much west coast experience so once preston strout called me to come out there and work with, like, Ami Vutilanen, who was working on their ad campaign and everything. And I got to meet everybody. And it was cool, because there were people from the East Coast that I knew, like Scott Stevens and, and Chris Beresford and Grenier and Colleen Quigley and everybody. But, like, then there was all these other people that I was starting to meet out there, like, whether it was Marvin or, you know, or all, like, the people that would come through, because everybody would come through. And I was, like lucky enough to have like a staff job there where I was shooting the ad campaigns. So we, and and that was like so critical at the time to like get these spreads for snowboarder and Transworld and whatever other magazines they were running in. But like we'd shoot like the, you know, everyone would come out and have a session. So if like JP and Jeremy would come out, like that was my task that week to get like a, you know, a print worthy photo of those guys. What a fucking dream. Like, you know, you, you get to go out there and, and shoot, yeah the visiting pros and make sure it's like a photo that can run in print when like it would have been so hard for me to get a photo run in print anyway like it was happening but not to that degree and that was so fun i mean and it was so fun because they cared you know like the jeremy and jp example like those guys would come out with like a vision for that spread and i'd sit down at dinner and we'd like rap about it and then the next day go out and make it happen and like yeah that was such a lucky lucky grab and and i mean Preston and Ami really made that happen for me too like I I had done well on the east coast and they were paying I mean Preston was paying attention to it because he was like a New Hampshire guy and you know that's its own little network that I was able to like lucky enough to be in the peripheral of and it still exists like all the people from where like Pat Moore's it from and, and all those guys like they they have their own little mafia on the east coast it's like you could you Californians could call us like East coasters, but back there, it's like, there's like Yale and Rotax up in Vermont. And then there was like, Pat and that gang, you know, down to like, the people now that are still like ripping out from there. Like it it all had it its own flavor and everything. But either way, Preston got me out there and that turned into its own world for me. And I got to meet like like, Brendan Drury, who took me down here for the first time, and I would come down to Tahoe City, where we are now, and, like, yeah, I don't know. You just made friends quick out there. It was so fun. Mm -hmm. And it was so fun, you know? Like, I don't know. The stories are endless. Is that kind of where you cut
0: your teeth in, like, shooting, like, the bigger pros?
1: Kind of, like, but really, really, it was where I, like, got invested with Scott and Chris. Like, those dudes were my guys. We are from the same state, and, like they they put me on they were like I don't know there was at least like a year or two where I would go to Salt Lake and I didn't live there but I would sleep under Scott's pool table and you know got to meet Granger and all these people that are still so important to me and that led to like Scott and Chris were both on 32 so that sort of quickly I was able to like get in touch with those guys and sort of start shooting with that team that was kind of this epic like five pack for the pro team at the time because it was jp sexton bradshaw scott and grenier and like somehow i got a contract with those guys fast because i was friends with those guys now i was friends with chris and scott to a degree that was like a little bit more we had partied out at hood and like done the whole thing together and then shot in the streets in the wintertime and I started traveling with that team. And that was like, then it was a whole nother game. Like that was so fun. And I remember like these epic Euro trips with those guys that were so bizarre and fun. And yeah, that was an important time. But that was all mixed in with the high cascade stuff at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you like kind of started out like your first paid contract shooting street rails.
1: Yeah. But I mean, more importantly, on the East Coast, that's what I was doing. Like, right. I, me and Brandon McInerney from the studio were coaching at Sugarbush under this epic guy that was named Tony Cicciolo, uh yeah. R.I.P. And he was super important to me, and he would smoke cigars, and he had this, like, tattoo on his neck of a bird, and he was so cool, and he was tied in with the Huffmans, and he was so important to so many people's careers, but definitely mine. But we were coaching um, a few kids on, like, a more elevated freestyle program, and they'd do the USASA contests. And, like, the Northern Vermont chapter was headed up by Paige Manning, who's super important uh, in that – super important in all worlds. Here's to Paige, but if you had an air horn, I would I would use it now. now. Yeah, Um, I would have used it for your dad too. Yeah, for sure. There's a few (laughs) air horns on this one, but – yeah, the Mannings, like, kind of ran that scene. But, like, I got tied in with a couple kids that were, yeah, really, like, really doing well in those USASA contests. And I was shooting with them a bunch, like, just because that was kind of the bulk of what I could do. Brendan was a snowboarder. And, like, he could he could tell them what to do and, like, help with their sevens coming around. And that wasn't my scene. Like, I was definitely able to, like, help them with their attitudes and shit but like from a technical standpoint like Brandon was our snowboarder and then I was able to like shoot some photos here and there but at the time too we were starting to shoot like we were like I was starting to shoot with like Jesse Curran and John Murphy who were like really epic snowboarders in Vermont and uh and and then shoot with like yeah shoot with Yale a bunch and that was really fun to like get photos run of him in like East Coast snowboarding and that was sort of like really where it all came together and that's why Preston knew what was up and I got to work with yeah, a bunch of people through that and sort of learn how to like get shit run in print and then yeah, bounced out west and like yeah, I had totally cut my teeth shooting in the streets so it was really easy for me to step in with Chris and Scott and and those guys and, and Sexton and like yeah, that's when videograss was kind of popping with Meyer, who helped us out with something last week. And yeah, all these people are still in the in the fold and th- those trips were sick, like because yeah, 32 had me going on a bunch of videograss trips, and yeah, I was shooting in, you know, I was going to Finland three times a year to shoot in Helsinki or go north to work with those guys. And there's, yeah, so so much of that was so important to me, and those were the photos I was getting run in in Transworld and Snowboarder at the time long before I was like starting to step foot heavily into the backcountry. I always wanted to get into the mountains, but yeah, I don't know.
0: That probably seems like kind of a daunting thing coming from the East Coast shooting street rails, like almost
1: otherworldly. I didn't know, like I just didn't know.
0: Yeah, you hadn't been exposed to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Alaska was out of the question, but going up to Whistler seemed like it was, I was interested and Drury and I, Drury and I took a trip from Tahoe up to Whistler at some point and chilled with Andrew Burns when they were making the Capita movie. And I think Burns was filming his video part like legitimately on a tripod. Like he was the filmer and he was going up and landing like double corks, which were essentially like revolutionary at the time for like, like his ender was like a super important trick and he filmed it himself on a tripod. But we went up and chilled with him a bit. And like, we were not even close to as good at sledding as he was, but I had bought this 2005 uh, Skidoo. I think it was an 800. It was yellow. I rode it up at Mount Rose here for the first time. My parents have this picture I saw last week on their fridge of me catching a little air that like Drury must have taken on it. It's so funny. Just <laughs> full tongue out, no helmet or anything. But we drove up to Whistler, and we went up to Brandywine Bowl, and... I thought that was insane like and I still do I mean every time I'm there I still think it's crazy but like we went up in like a whiteout and just shot like he had such a good slaw bear we would just shoot these like like really dope indies and shit that he was doing and I'd shoot like these fisheye photos that I still can remember like yesterday but yeah that was my like intro to that and that was kind of all happening at the same time like we went up there when I was just before I was getting on 32 and traveling and stuff but like yeah, I don't know that that shit, that shit. Did, like I didn't real, I didn't realize what was in front, like right, like I guess what was behind, like brandy wine bowl and shit, like you know, <laughs> yeah. like like I was like, damn, this is this is where this goes down. Like it was so much bigger than anything I had ever seen at the time. Like yeah, that was not Wachusett or Sugarbush.
0: I remember being close friends with Andrew Burns, and I just gotta shout him out because Errol. self filming on a tripod like he had hustle in him and i remember him like going out there and making it happen for himself and i have so much respect for that
1: dude that was a big movie yeah that was a big movie and he had a video part in it and he earned it yeah tooth and nail yeah i really respected that and i i it's easy to like be exposed to something like that and keep it with you like when you meet someone like that that's doing it in like this place and time like that hustle is everything I heard a quote recently, it said, uh, the last mile is always the least crowded. And like, thinking about how many times you could get turned around, and how many times I hear people getting turned around, I don't have a filmer, I don't have a filmer, I can't get a sled, like, this isn't happening. Mm -hmm. That was never the mindset, you know, like, it was like, no, I'm gonna like, spend my whole summer's paycheck on this fucking 2005 skidoo and like hope things work out and totally yeah like that would stress me out so much now to think that like i was living that hard on the edge but i did sleep under scott's pool table like scott and granger and bogey's pool table and waited for an ad to sell until i could move next and then spend that on going to whistler with drury and like getting a brandy wine bowl like whatever it was like yeah i was getting to that Less crowded last mile. Right. I, hope I like this that. I isn't the last mile, but. Oh, no, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I remember buying my first sled too. It was a 2003 RMK 600 and taking that thing from Tahoe up to Whistler and being so scared going into the backcountry, getting stuck. Like, I mean, one time walking out and leaving my sled behind at three in the morning, being like, what the hell? We know nothing. And realizing that we know nothing. But also just like hanging it out there and like, yeah, all right, I'm gonna buy a sled. I'm taking this risk I have no idea where it's gonna take me but like it pays off in the end if you stick with it interrupting this episode to thank darn tough socks they've been making socks in vermont for over 40 years they say they have yet to produce their best sock but i am not convinced as i absolutely love their socks when i first started writing for them i was told they have a cult following and i quickly understood why slipping into a pair of darn toughs is like a dream for your feet straight up durable comfortable made to last darn tough is a family-owned business since the beginning and they're now three generations strong Knitting socks is an ardent skill passed from father to son, and they've cultivated a community that stands behind their products, myself included. Additionally, I'd like to shout out Sierra Nevada Brewery, another family-owned company doing good in creating a delicious array of beers and then some. Did you know they have mimosas, hard kombucha, and their hop splash is a new love of mine? Watermelon, sea salt, lime, and mint is one of their kombucha flavors, it's delicious. Also, I just love their slogan, family owned, operated, and argued over. Sierra Nevada supports so much good stuff in the outdoor industry. I'm very appreciative of this company and their involvement. Sparked by the spirit of innovation and curiosity, Sierra Nevada started selling beers in 1980, but not after years of sampling with the home brewing kit as the founder, Ken, picked up in 1969. They've got it dialed.
1: It's so sick. It's like, I don't know that barrier of entry is important and I hate to call it that because like that kind of brings up some buzzwords in our society right now and like I know that snowboarding's really hard to get into from a monetary perspective but like I don't know I watched I watched Raibu this year like you know he earned it like he came out from. A total scenario where he's like on the Japanese pipe team like that's what he's doing but he's chilling with Ferg and these guys enough to understand what's going on and he's ridden powder back home enough and like he came out and took his contest earnings from a third place I think at Dutour and like threw it all down on a sled chucked it on my deck and like started cutting his teeth out there oh my god he got stuck so many times but he loved (laughs) it like that's what he wanted and, not, and he got clips, and he got photos, and it yeah, it's that's like the start of a whole new path for someone, or I don't know, around the corner, like I think of Keegan Hossifrost, who was one of my guys under Tony and Tony's program, and me and Brandon were like, you know, that's a close family friend of mine at this point, because like his parents are epic, and we've gotten to like grow up together, but I watched him, I watched him hustle, like he worked like heavy landscaping hours, and bought a sled from the guy around the corner, and now he's, yeah, he's showing a bunch of promise out there on the 686 program under under McCarthy and those guys and getting out with Mason and Blavelt and everybody. And, like, yeah, there's a way to do it and, it, and it's fucking hustle. Like, that's the way.
0: Yeah, and to add to that, too, because I feel like as an athlete you get asked that, like, how did you get into this? And Jim Zellers, I love... Jim Zellers but his he's he's actually taken the time to interview a bunch of professional athletes primarily on the North Face team and he asked them all the same question how did you what was your path how did you get into this and he says every story is different there is no recipe for how to become a professional skier or a professional outdoor photographer or whatever it is like everyone cuts their teeth in a different way and I wonder, too, like, watching... I've been really heavy on the sports documentaries lately, but watching, like, the the drive and the grit that some of these athletes have to become the best, like, I don't know. They all have a different process, and it's pretty damn impress- impressive how dedicated people are to their craft.
1: Surely, yeah. I think We keep talking about it, like, in our conversations off air here, but, I mean, I think there's a funny thing with... I'm not going to sit here and and dismiss social media as a problem or anything but i think one of the things that it does is open up this access point where people that are trying to figure out how to get into whatever game it might be whether it's professional skiing shooting photos design whatever all of a sudden there's this like dm access point to your heroes and i think that that opens up some potential like huge gains for getting like knowledge or seeing how people are living their lives to some degree you know like you're getting a window into something but it also could open up some problems thinking like you can taste this like that much more like you're one step removed from this person that you want to be or whatever it might be and like I think it's pretty easy to look at what's going on in social media and see like the similarities between like a normal life or whatever it might be that you're seeing and like not not recognize the hustle and like the grit that people put in to like push to achieve some of those spaces and i i don't know i think like to some degree i could see the photographers that i was coming up under like probably feeling the same way and i'm in no way in no way would i ever want to discourage anyone from getting into it i just want to encourage people to know that the hustle is the best part of the damn thing like sleeping under that pool table is everything and like finding finding the line to like get to where you were going like the process is everything Mm -hmm. it's so important and it's so fun and that's like that's why life is interesting like yeah working those landscaping hours for Keegan to get that sled like that's the story and that's why he'll succeed like nothing nothing's ever like given to you that's going to last. And that was it. Like I would go and at the beginning, like when I first started getting photos running Eastern edge or whatever it was at the time, I was like, all right, next year I'm going to get a spread in that magazine. And the year after, maybe I can get a quarter page in trans world and that'll be like crazy. Like, you know, you get that shit in the mail at your parents' house and And your photo's in there, whether you're a writer or photographer someone that's writing, whatever. Like, that was huge at the time. And then the year after, I can get a spread in that mag. And then maybe I'll get a shot of getting a cover. And this would have been, like, four or five years into my career. And, like, I didn't see that happening from the time I got my first, like, fucking 16th of a page of Aaron Bittner from some rail jam in New York City when I was, like, 19 to, like, I didn't see those covers for damn near 15 years and that was a joke to write all that stuff down I wish I still had that page of those goals and it's good to have goals but I think I was barking up the wrong tree because once I started to realize that my goals were more focused on liking the photos that I was shooting that's when I started to win Mm. and I mean that process doesn't happen without some pain like it was like oh Like, a year's gone by, and I didn't get that photo run in Transworld. That shit showed up in the mail, and maybe I thought it was going to run, but it didn't. And, like, everyone's had that moment. You thought you were going to get the cover, you didn't get the cover. Oh, I went to a movie premiere, thinking I
0: had a part, and I sat down with all my friends and family and didn't have a part. Yeah.
1: Heart sinker. Yeah, like, that's that's the story. Because what do you do after that?
0: Oh, you grind real, real hard to get it back
1: and some people don't
0: yeah it and can be discouraging for sure yeah yeah.
1: but yeah by the time I started to figure out that like placement was nothing like I wanted to make imagery that I liked and I wanted to make money so that I could continue to make imagery that I liked and once I got into that cycle that's when things started to happen and I started to see contracts and I started to move with the people that I should have been moving with the whole time and suddenly I was like finding myself in a position where I was talking to photo editors at the magazines I wanted to get stuff run at. And I was able to like snag that senior role at snowboarder, which was epic. And that put me in like a different position to keep that process going. It was like, okay, like you learn something from being like, I wrote all these goals down that I wasn't going to achieve in the amount of time that I wanted to. I learned that like this way of thinking was going to, benefit me creatively, benefit me monetarily, whatever it might have been, like, those are all building blocks. And that's life. Like, if you start to, like, realize what's working and what's not, and, like, rewrite the book every couple years, that's what's gonna get you ahead. And eventually, I did get all the things that were written on that list, and then some, but, like, it doesn't just happen. Like,
0: so many parallels it's really interesting actually hearing you talk about it like because i was a competition kid i did slopestyle and half pipe and then i didn't necessarily love it like i left racing to get away from the competitive aspect of the sport skiing was my favorite thing and it was my passion and my obsession and it was a way of life but i didn't necessarily want to compete even though I, i am very attracted to watching competitions and stuff it just necessarily wasn't for me But eventually, when I walked away and started filming, I lost like the majority of my sponsors at that time. I also had a knee injury, but like that's when shit started to pop for me too.
1: (laughs) But I love that story. Like, I don't know. Like, have you ever told that on this thing? Like,
0: I've told the story so many times, but (laughs) I had a knee injury. I landed on a rock my first big time filming with Matchstick and blew my ACL, my meniscus, medial patellofemoral microfracture cartilage damage, like, the whole nine, and it was a solid year and a half, two years to recover from that one, and in that process, the Olympics had been announced for slopestyle, I had just come out on top, like, the last slopestyle comp I entered, I won, and, um, yeah, so I, like, really had to marinate on, like, should I go to the Olympics, or should I start filming, and I think, you know, I remember going, like, eventually, I was starting to recover and going for these long walks, just thinking about it, like, what's my choices here? And then I uh, clearly went for the passion-filled powder <laughs> and uh, walked away from the Olympics, but simultaneously lost all my sponsors. And I had just purchased my first home here in Tahoe. It was in 2009, right after the recession, and couldn't pay my taxes. Walked in, sat in front of my CPA and started crying. Had no money to my name, basically. Like, I mean, back in the day, your sponsors would drop you, and that meant you had nothing. You had no backup plan. Like, I didn't go to college. I made it through high school, and year after year, my career started to build. But I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I might have to sell my house. I can't pay my taxes. Like, what is going to happen? And But I remember not being, like, so upset about it. Like, I cried to my CPA, and I walked out of there and, like, figured shit out real quick. Like, I knew I wanted it, and... Yeah, just started making phone calls. Actually, my first call was to Steve Reska, who was a cinematographer at Matchstick at the time. And I was like, hey, I'm back. I want to come film, but I have no sponsors. And he was like, all right. And he like found Atomic and then he found Mountain Hardware and he kind of lined me up with the sponsors that were supporting Matchstick. And I filmed that year. And to be quite honest, when I called him, I wasn't sure that I was 100% back. Like, I did not think I could go film a video part but I wanted it, and I showed up, and for whatever reason, coming off an injury, I had zero pressure on my shoulders, like, I almost just lost my house, and lost everything, and in my mind, I was like, I'm 21 years old, I can do something else, I can get a job as a waitress, and start going to college again, like, I can figure this out, I'm young, like, it's not the end of the world, but I want this badly, and, uh, And then simultaneously, yeah, going into that season, feeling zero pressure because I had come off this major injury, which uh, unbeknownst to me, the doctor had told my dad that he didn't think I would ski again. Like it was bad. And my dad kept that a secret from me. He didn't tell me, which I'm so thankful for because I had, I mean, I was spending six hours in the gym, just like focusing on getting better. And, uh, yeah, ended up, after that season, I thought I skied okay, but I wasn't like, that was the best season ever. But I remember going to the world premiere in Seattle with Matchstick, and, and uh, yeah, the segment played. But just before the movie played, I got a phone call that they told me that I had won Skier of the Year. And, and Reska had moved from being a cinematographer with Matchstick to being a team manager at Red Bull. And the first person he brought on board was me. And he handed me a hat that night when he picked me up from the airport. And I like when you hit rock bottom financially and support wise and you it's almost hard to see that future to come back like that for me was like life changing for sure. And I like I don't know Reska saw something he believed in me, but I took every opportunity that he put in front of me and I did my absolute best. And I had no idea where that would lead, but it like yeah I don't know surrounding yourself with people that are supportive and like showing up every single day with a smile on your face like attitude was everything too like you have to be fun to be around too in the mountains if you're bumming or you're crashing and you're getting super upset and throwing temper tantrums like that goes nowhere on my crew that goes nowhere (laughs) I'll put you in your place now that I'm more confident than I was back then but yeah I don't know that was life-changing
1: hell yeah that's the hustle yeah that's it like that's the spark red jacket year too right
0: yeah red jag I got a thing for red jackets I feel like I win win part of the year when I I wear yeah Yeah. red jackets got it It pops
1: I think it's important
0: yeah yeah
1: Honold wore a red shirt on that thing
0: totally red's the way best sports it's a good color time Uh uh-huh
1: tiger wears the red I think here and there when he does good Red jacket. Stanford's red Stanford, you you <laughs>
0: that is the weirdest thing. Like your dad goes to college at a place, and you don't even go to college, but you're a fan of that college because of that.
1: Big Stanford family. Yeah,
0: yeah, big Stanford. Go trees. Um, <laughs> so you kind of spoke about like your print goals early on and how they came to fruition. How old were you when you sold your first photo?
1: I think I was eighteen or nineteen. They, I think it was like Neil Corn at east coast magazine or eastern edge sent me down to new york to shoot i think it was some red bull rail jam like i just remember some it was probably one of my first times seeing like those big trucks that they have and like i i don't even remember who won or what happened but i had this photo of Bittner on like a rainbow rail or something and it yeah it ran in the magazine and they had paid for my trip which was I didn't know how all that worked at the time, but to to get gas paid for from Vermont to New York City felt really revolutionary for me. Still does. Mm-hmm. I appreciate all oh, that yeah. always. But I mean, yeah, I went down there, didn't stay in the city, and just like ripped back up and got this photo run. And that was, yeah, I bet I was 18 or 19.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we haven't really spoken about this, but talk about your influence with music as well.
1: I mean... That was like when I was saying like it goes both ways with my dad and everything like he was always always playing music in the house and like chased the dead around and all kinds of bands when he was younger and was like, yeah, really into the kinks growing up and all these like just really good bands, I think still. Um, And yeah, he always had a guitar around and would like strum around on it. Uh, and it was easy to, easy to want that. My mom had me on the piano for a little while, but it just didn't like, I don't know, there was too much math and piano for me. I kind of wish I could play piano now and I can like mess around on it and it's all good. But I always wanted to play guitar, like same deal with the snowboard. I was like, I was dead set on that. Uh, and I was, a, I was and am a lefty and, uh, the guitar at the shop. I was a lefty was a little like out of reach from like a price perspective for a kid that like maybe wasn't going to stick with it or whatever the plan was. I got like a black and white strat looking PV, uh, like eliminator or some crazy name, but it was like, it looked like, yeah, it just looked like a black and white strat full size. And I learned how to play that righty and still play righty. And I've played guitar my whole life. So like, yeah, since I was super young, uh, and i love that shit it's important play 20 minutes a day every day and you'll get good at that thing
0: we had a good jam session earlier
1: yeah yeah it's good it's healthy
0: yeah do you think that music influences your perspective through the lens
1: possibly i care like i said earlier a lot about composition and i think like that applies obviously to music also so like yeah. When a song reaches its height or whatever it might be, there's like reasons that the human mind picks up on things working and clicking. And those concepts I can see many obvious parallels to. And there is a lot of math in that and a lot of like importance to the structure of a song or the structure of a photo or the structure of a a painting that did really well or whatever it might be. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, from a composition standpoint, hell yeah. Like, those two things correlate but I'm not sitting there like thinking about like (laughs) like a box (laughs) like (laughs) masterpiece while I'm framing up a photo of Ferg or something but that would be sick Maybe I should listen to classical music or something while I shoot. That would be way cooler.
0: I've been into that vibe lately. You
1: listen to classical music while you drop in? No, I think you it's so, yeah,
0: it's people. so beautiful when you have classical music playing behind some beautiful powder turns. I just think it's magical.
1: But are you like are you like taking another heli lap and like listening to <laughs> <laughs>
0: No. No, I actually don't listen to music out there for obvious reasons, yeah. but Yeah. Yeah. Um, you just brought up shooting with Ferg and earlier you kind of brought up that relationship between the photographer and the athletes. I think your first example was Jeremy and JP, how they had a vision and you would sit the night before and then you'd execute the next day. But from your perspective, because I love working with you in the mountains, like talk about that relationship from the athlete to the photographer and, and how do you think that like creates magic and makes you excel or, or if there's a lack of relationship, like I, I think that affects the photo.
1: For sure. I mean, first and foremost, it's, like, always been writer first for me. Like, I don't think that at any point I've ever been, like... Like, you get that feeling when you're a shooter, whether you're, I think whether you're, like, a cinematographer or photographer, like, you see an air or a line or whatever it might be, and, like, you can frame it up, and, like... I think anyone worth their weight on, like, a movie staff or on a magazine staff or whatever. Like if you're shooting out there, like you probably should be able to see it before it happens. That visualization is key for us too. But like you can let that get into your head and let it like kind of hold some weight as something that you really want to see happen, but you gotta, and you should be excited about that. But holding space for like allowing a rider's process to come first is Like that's number one and always has been. And I've only heard a few instances where it hasn't been, but like I try to avoid that pressure um, from like a lensman's standpoint at all times. Um, And I think that probably like breeds a better relationship between like athlete and shooter anyway, because there's just that trust where you're like not like you want to like build a jump for Ten hours and have, like, beautiful evening light and back off it. Like, let's do that. Like, I want to go eat a nice meal with you and have a drink later because you didn't do that. Like, that's fine. And that should always be fine. But, I mean, I guess beyond that, like, knowing someone is everything. And, I mean, even if you're just meeting someone on a trip for the first time as a shooter or, like, whatever it might be, like spending the time to have a good conversation or like stopping once or twice on the sled ride out or whatever it might be the hike like the car ride to a spot like whatever you're doing like make sure to like know that person and like figure out what they're into and then like the last part of that is like yeah that JP Jeremy conversation like what do you want to do like what should this photo look like what what does this look like to you cuz that is super important that's how you guys are portrayed like i don't know I want that to come through in your style more than mine. Um, at the time, I think JP really wanted to do this trick where he was just standing up completely straight with his hands on his hips, like as if he was like Captain Jack Sparrow on the front of the ship or something like that. <laughs> and it looked dumb, but we, <laughs> but we made it happen. <laughs> it, that was a sick ad.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I love that.
1: But then, yeah, like with like with for like as that example like i don't know i've traveled and shot with him like since i don't know like for a really long time and like i think we do better because of that and maybe we don't have to have those conversations of like what should this look like or what's the moment or whatever and like he can be on a mountaintop and like for whatever reason like our shit has clicked a lot and like there's people like that i don't know do you have shooters that you've just worked with that like kind of just know like you've been through that process enough times and you're gonna you're gonna get something worthy every time you go out with them because yeah
0: I think from the athlete perspective like when I look at a line from the bottom I am looking at how I want to write it and then I'm also like I'm out there trying to make either moving images or still photography so like how can I Ride this, where can I put the slough that's going to create the best action shot? And there's people that are very well known for getting beautiful imagery because they know how to make the turn in the right place to send the slough before you off the cliff and slow up so that you're airing it with your slough. Like there's so much of this, these intricacies that come into play when you're dropping in. And so I try to like really visualize the photo as well. And if I have someone that I'm comfortable with, then we'll talk through that process and be like, okay, I'm gonna send some slough there and then I'm airing there or like whatever that looks like. But I certainly, I think that's where like the art almost comes into being an athlete. Like I can ride down a mountain and you can take a photo and I can hit a huge air. But if I didn't ride it in this style, in this light, in this way and that you know maybe it's a butt shot or something like i have to think about that and consider it when i'm dropping in too so yeah (laughs) fair um but yeah there's there's certain cinematographers to me that stand out that like i don't know i call like nate nash i always call him my lucky charm out there like He's kind of a little leprechaun, too. Yeah. (laughs) Leprechaun? Yeah. he like, rub his bald head, and it's just, like, a lucky scene. Yeah. We just had, like, we clicked out there. He kept it light. He kept it fun. When I won segment of the year on multiple times, he was the person that I was out there shooting with the most. And now, like, I mean, I spend more time with cinematographers than photographers. I'm so lucky when you come on a trip, too. But, like, Rafe this year, Rafe Robinson was my guy. And we filmed my entire segment just one-on-one, him and me. I mean, I had, like, Lucy out here on occasion, and like, but really it was him and I every single day waking up, going to the trailhead, figuring it out. And I wouldn't recommend that. Like, I think there's a lot of safety considerations to take in when you're doing that, but at the same time, it was beautiful. And, like, we would visualize stuff, and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to make – like, I remember one day – I went up and I wanted to make mirrored turns on a skis and snowboards. And like we found two ridgelines that looked almost identical and like we really thought about the process and how we wanted it to look and then went out there and and shot it. But I think one of those shots made the movie. The other one got cut. Me on the board got cut. Um, But yeah, I think that relationship is really important for more reasons than just the artistic outcome, but for safety, for, someone your hype person like that's your hype person out
1: there I think that's critical and I think like you touched on it like yeah most of the time we're not out there with two people like a lot of times it's a crew and more often than not I would say it's like a four pack of riders maybe a three pack of riders for max usually and then either one or two cinematographers and a photographer in my experience and like making sure that that feels right and is the right group of people and everyone's on the same page from like a safety perspective first and foremost to an attitude perspective and then like the goals throughout a day are going to be everyone's if everyone's aligned on that stuff like you're going to be in a good spot I think like we've all seen examples of that not working and I mean that spans across I'm assuming the workplace and the mountains and everything in between like politics are important and yeah, you should, you should feel good with your crew. That's critical. Um, I had another point I was going to make, but I can't remember it all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think that's what drove me into the filming world of our sport, too. Like, competing felt very individualistic to me at that time, and I grew up doing team sports. Like, I loved that team camaraderie and the communication And even in life, I compare so many life instances to an avalanche scenario. And how do you communicate? And how do you uplift people and do the job as efficiently as possible or whatever it is? Like, it's so relatable to me.
1: I like that. Yeah, I like the thought of like, I don't know, I heard an interview with like a famous music producer recently, and they were talking about putting the right people in the room. And I think that, like, there's a lot to be said on a crew where, like, everything's working. And I think a lot of that has to do with having the right people in the room. And I think that, like, I don't know, like, a lot of magic comes together when that happens. And you can be the best in the world at something, but if you don't have the right attitude coming into a crew like that, like, you're dead in the water, I think. And the rest of the crew will come down with you, like, and I do think, like, at the at the peak of that is, is like, what I said in the beginning. Like, I'd much prefer to bail on something and go have dinner than, like, to have, like, risked something or even just made someone feel uncomfortable. Like, fuck that every time. There's never a time when someone should feel like they're being pushed into doing something by anyone else on that crew, and I think that that's rule number one. And I think that, like... I hope that for the most part, that's like the cruise that I've been on. And lately, like more and more, I've been feeling like I love my cruise so much, whether it's, yeah, Eels or Rafe or Bagger on the sticks and like all the riders that we end up out with, like, man, my, my scene right now is about as fun and as tight and as trustworthy as it gets and i love that shit Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. we're all on the same page and that's there's nothing better than that
0: yeah i've had the absolute honor and privilege to uh getting to jump on your crew a couple of times over the years and even make like movies together or projects together with some of the athletes and It is so fun to get to dive into your scene and and take that with me with my crew too. I think the one day that really comes to mind is uh, last year, not last season, but the season before I was in Girdwood and had just finished rapping with my crew and you were in Valdez and I like ended up, no, I was in, I was at Mm P&H and I like flew back to Anchorage (laughs) Got in a car and you had been like, there's this, I think Ben actually, Ferguson called me and was like, yo, there's an empty seat. Do you want to come jump in? And I like rallied for one day with your squad out there. And it was so special to be in the mountains with, with well, you had to sit out actually. Yeah. <laughs> but photographer, got, yeah. photographer
1: gets cut off the seat first for sure, <laughs> which is fun.
0: Yeah. I was with Sharon and Ben and Rafe and it felt like my people too. And it was really fun. I had a blast.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we do it right. Yeah. I liked on that trip, you were at points north in Cordova, like probably 90 miles south of us. And I think it's like your birthday week too, for sure. And you sent me like a zone map. Because it was funny because you were with Hatchet and those guys. And and we were like, you put a no-fly zone on your zone map. (laughs) yeah I did where my crew wasn't allowed to go to because we were totally within range of that kind of stuff (laughs) happening but we haven't had too many crew conflicts that would be funny if we had some zone battles I think there's probably some secrets in both Tahoe and Alaska that you hold that you're gonna hold out on me with and I'm okay with that but
0: unless I take you there yeah yeah
1: all right, snowboarders, I'll get the, <laughs> I'll get the, uh, I'll get the waypoints.
0: You've got your ins, you know how it goes. Um, we've kind of breezed through this like really major aspect of your work, which I love and appreciate, and I love the way you talk about it too. But can you tell me a little bit about like shooting contests?
1: Yeah, I mean, since that first contest at the U.S. Open with Ricky Levinson, like. I've probably shot like I would think in the in the triple digits of shooting contests. Like I I don't know, it's pretty easy. I always end up with like my board bag full of credentials at the end of the season and I put them all in like a box somewhere and I can like I don't know where that box is, but I can see it and it's got to be like 100 pieces of plastic plus like cuz there were there used to be so many contests when like Dutor would have I think like between three and five stops, and then there was always the open, and then X Games, and then I've been to like a few noteworthy grand Prix when like the Olympic qualifiers come around. But I'm sure as a kid, I was like just shooting those like nonstop, and that was my in. Like that was where the that was where the money was coming from. That was my little hustle. Like I could go m- make money shooting the contests for I shot a lot for like Annie Fast at Trans World, and still get to chill with her because she's. Eels's lovely partner and a boss at writing, and we get to work together frequently now, which is sweet, but I used to be terrified of her. Me and Honda would go out and shoot the contest with Pat Fenelon, and she was like, "If you yeah, we didn't miss when we were shooting for Annie, but I was shooting for a bunch of people, and yeah, I was able to sort of get in in that scene, and I mean, yeah, I talk about the monetary standpoint like that was able to." yeah, float me when my rent was cheap, sleeping under Scott's pool table or whatever it might have been. And like, it also gave me the reps. It was like, how many more times do you click the shutter when you're shooting a half pipe contest than when you go out and shoot on a heli day? Like, it's not even comparable. And I still appreciate that. And I don't think i'll ever stop going to at least a few or, or at least one contest a year because i don't know early season it's nice to like use your gear in that way and like rip through a couple thousand frames of whatever type of action and i mean that whole thing also gave me like a good perspective on how to hustle people hated shooting contests like i was the one that was down to do it like it was like dirty work or something when i was on staff at the magazines i mean I'm not saying everybody hated it all the time, but I was, like, damn near eager to go to those things. And there was certainly a time when, from, like, a business perspective, I was learning a ton about that, and I was able to pick up, like, a good number of clients when I would go to X Games to the to the level where, like, it was almost like this little game I would play to see if I could... This is kind of whack, but, like, see if I could, like, make more than whoever was going to, like, win slope or something like that, just as a photographer, because it was, like... It was like interesting to me because i could like yeah i could shoot for like a couple energy drinks and then like a couple goggle companies snowboard company whatever it was and it was this like epic hustle and yeah to deliver on that and like walk away with that type of like i don't know for me that's just like yeah i can do this for that much longer because i like was able to put that money away or whatever it was but also like the byproduct of it was just shooting a shitload more than I would have if I was just trying to get days in the backcountry or days in the streets like yeah they're gonna run that contest rain or shine and you're gonna shoot rain or shine and that challenge is epic in itself figuring out how to like open up the shutter more and be able to still kill it on whatever day you're gonna be on like you have to come home when it was shooting for Annie and and trans or shooting for snowboarder like you had to populate a gallery on your own, and, like, yeah, that's, like, for me, that was always, like, an honor, and I appreciated it, but that does come with, like, its own challenge, and if you, like, say you fucked up, and you were hungover, and you missed practice, like, you do need to kill it during finals, and you need to be tax sharp, because the world's gonna see those photos, and that's the representation of it, and, like, that's a fun little challenge in itself that I probably went through more often than not, and that's okay. But like, those things were important. And that was how I learned so much about how to get the job done.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been occasions, you've really inspired me to shoot more photos. And I know going on certain trips, sometimes you'll just leave me with an assignment. You're like, okay, on this trip, I want you to come back with a really beautiful portrait of everyone on the trip. And I'm like, okay and it helps me to have that goal with photography and now I kind of set them for myself sometimes or I know what I want the outcome to be and I just go out there and I like all right, Aaron gave me this homework assignment. I'm going to do it.
1: The homework comes back around in our conversation, but I think like taking an academic approach to something is important and that was what it was. Like if I came back empty-handed to to Annie in that scenario, like that wasn't going to work. Like And it wasn't busy work at that point. That was my job. So yeah, making it, making it an assignment is, is dope. Like whether it's going to shoot your family reunion or going to shoot with rice and those guys, like knowing that you want to come back with a solid portrait because that's going to look dope in your portfolio or knowing that like, it is really critical to go get a portrait of your grandmother or grandfather and shoot it on the Hasselblad, shoot it on something that matters. Like go out there with goals and you're going to come back with what you need. Uh, And I think that like taking that type of energy into any time that you're out shooting something is critical. I still think like messing around with a camera is fun and you can go out into the woods and try and get something cool. Like whatever that might be. If you're shooting photos of bark or shooting photos of beetles or whatever, like it's good to experiment too. But like if you know that you're going to do something somewhere or someone's coming to visit you or you're, going on an assignment for something else, like coming back with personal goals always leads to growth and like pushing yourself in those ways is important. Mm
0: -hmm. I think of every individual in our industry as a holder of cards to a certain extent. We all have different roles we play, whether you're an athlete, a cinematographer, a photo, a photographer or an editor at a magazine. Um, how do you think, like, what do you think your role as a photographer and how, like, I'm having a hard time formulating this question, but I think about it a lot in terms of bringing more people into our sport and making our sport more inclusive. Like, my role as an athlete, like, I have power within the companies I work with. Um, I have power of suggestion. I have my voice, and that matters. How do you think that comes across as a photographer
1: I mean that's what drew me into the whole thing like I saw that photo of Inglesman at the shop and like I wanted to do this thing like I think with anything like the imagery or the video or whatever it is that like is a spark for someone is like pretty sweet and I guess I know that there's like a bunch of infrastructure problems and like issues especially with like the ticket prices and the price of gear and everything but I for sure sleep well at night knowing that there's photos that I've put out there that have made people want to get into the mountains and it boils down to that for me like I think that like yeah I love that I love going up and like crossing that threshold of going past a certain point and you can get up there and it's cold and the snow makes the shapes and the colors that it makes. And yeah, the things that I love about the mountains can like transfer to these photos and those photos can make someone get that spark that I had when I saw that photo, whoever they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that getting into the mountains is just a good thing.
0: I do too. Um, To flip the script a little bit. I remember when you were going to a contest one time and I gave you a homework assignment and I told you, To go shoot women and make them shine and shoot your best photos of the women and that's kind of more what I was driving at like I think you hold a lot of cards as a photographer depending on who you shoot and how you portray athletes and I know that that's a two-way streak but like yeah I don't know do you want to add to that at
1: all I just I don't know I've generally shot with the people on the cruise that have like a good attitude and when I get to go work with yeah, Kelly or Zoe or, you know, whoever it might be. Like, yeah, it's always been It's always been easy to point a lens at, like, whoever's having the best time. And that doesn't have any denomination or gender or race or any of that. Like, I don't know. I've had so much fun just shooting with people that are, like, completely new to this sport. Or, uh, I, I don't know i'm not gonna like tout that as something that i've done a ton but like i was able to go out to telluride on assignment for burton and it was a project with telluride adaptive and with the internal team at burton that had engineered some gear for this lovely snowboarder named holly from australia who was differently abled and they had basically created outerwear and a snowboard that allowed her to ride uh and and she she really hadn't had gear like this until Burton stepped in and their engineering team had developed this, um, this setup for her. And we went up to this kind of easier run at Telluride that's epic because it's up high in the mountain. Where most mountains, uh, the easiest runs that you might start skiing or snowboarding on are at the bottom. This is up this gondola and it's up in these, yeah, this epic peripheral in southern Colorado in... In Telluride and uh and also the program at Telluride for Adaptive is above and beyond the people working there were just like so pleasant to work with and they cared so much and they were invested in Holly's snowboarding and I was able to shoot with her and it was like for sure something that I'll carry with me like yeah. I, I can't even remember like the other trips that year that are important. I know there were a lot of them, but like to me that that kind of attitude and like her joy to be up there riding and she she like that was like a breakthrough day of her sorting out some some backside turning and yeah her getting on her toe edge that day was super memorable for me and I guess like to that point like an assignment can bring you yeah it can bring you that happiness and bring you back to like what you like about that sport rather than Unfortunately there are a lot of days when I don't go out and strap in and I got to snowboard with Holly on that day and shoot her enjoying this thing that we all get to we all get to enjoy and I don't know that's what I like pointing a lens at more than more than anything, and that can sound as cheesy as you want to hear it said, but like that's what I mean. It was no, sick. I
0: remember you lived that. Like you came home and you were so enthusiastic about your trip to Telluride. It was it was really cool to hear about it. But I also remember just to go back to my original question. Like you delivered. You came back with one of the most beautiful photos I've ever seen of Chloe Kim in the halfpipe, and I was really psyched that you kind of took that and ran with it.
1: Backlit, yeah, Breckenridge pipe. Big, yeah, some of those backside airs she would do at the beginning of her run were, yeah, some of the most memorable airs in the pipe, for sure.
0: hmm yeah. She, she's got it. That was very special. Um, okay, we've gone for an hour and 33 minutes, and we have not eaten dinner, and I'm getting pretty hungry, but mm-hmm. I do want to touch on, you've made quite a few films now. You've branched away from photography. You've started an agency called Homestead, And I kind of want to know about the why behind Homestead and then additionally, like, the process that you've learned in creating these movies and the difficulties because I think that's an interesting thing for people to hear about.
1: Yeah, I mean, our whole conversation kind of, like, leads to that agency. I, like, I had a good run with 32, and then I worked with Vans for a little while, and then I found myself at a crossroads and wanted to be in the big mountains and I was really enjoying the process of my days in the backcountry. And I had gone on this such a fun trip with, uh, with, I don't remember who, who, who I was with, but I, I went to China for an errand style and ended up chilling with Sage a ton, like right after he had won the Olympics. And I don't know, we just kind of like talked a lot and, and we were on the same page with a lot of stuff but I had also been riding with Ben a bunch and shooting with Ben a bunch, and also with Red and and all three of them were kind of echoing like the same desires to get into bigger mountains that I had and just to be like on a crew that had the same things that we were talking about earlier where there's just a lot of trust and everybody's in it for the same reasons. And the three of us and Ryan Runke, who represented Red and Ben, kind of got together and had a meeting and decided to make a project called Joy. So yeah, Sage, Red, and Ben and I, and Ryan Runke, who is Ben and Red's agent, and I believe was your agent at the time, uh, all got together in California and had a meeting about making this movie the next year, and everyone was on the same page, and we were all excited, and it was just one of those epic creative moments where a few people get together that kind of have the same mindset, and we rolled into the thought process of making a movie the next year, because there just wasn't the right fit for any of us on any crew, and I had never made a movie before, but I had been on a lot of crews and kind of understood what went into it to some degree, and yeah, we set out to make that. Uh, And then on the back end, Ryan Runke and I created an LLC with another friend of ours, and that became homestead creative which was i think just a playlist that me and you were listening to at a time and i think you told us to name it that because it just fit and didn't mean too much but yeah after the fact it seems like a sweet name for something and we've made a bunch of movies under that title and done a bunch of commercial work since then that has really worked out and it's been a pleasure to work alongside Ryan and Brian who are my partners on that and now Java Fernandez also and yeah that thing's been really fun and it's been a sweet way to scale up and make some bigger things and we've yeah we've worked for some heavy clients with that outfit and gotten to pay a bunch of like really solid contracts to a bunch of really good friends of ours that are super talented lens folk in the mountains and yeah I I'm so psyched on where that's gone and where it's going
0: yeah yeah I think a lot of people don't always understand kind of the state of the industry with creating these bigger scale projects. And there's a few staples within the industry that have had their names and built their names and they've been around for forever. Matchstick, TGR, I mean, in snowboarding, there was MacDog, there was Standard Films. and, and, And now you're seeing a lot more independent companies kind of come about and create stuff. And I know personally, like, as an athlete, it's way easier to sign up for the Matchstick like, roster and go, and they just tell you where to show up and when to be there, and sometimes you might produce a trip here and there, but like realistically, you're showing up, and you're getting to ski and do your job, and, and for me, I think something that's always driven me forward, and you mentioned it earlier in our conversation, is that recreation of yourself every so often, like continuing to learn and to grow and to develop as a human, and becoming more involved with these more independent companies or, you know, creating originate and producing that or now like my first directorial job with continuum and Arc'teryx, like it's amazing, but it is so hard and it is so much work. And I hope that those independent movie companies continue to create films. Um, But yeah, I don't know, I guess just from your perspective, like it's hard. And I want to hear, like, I want to hear from your perspective the state of that, I think, within the industry.
1: I mean, currently, it's just, I'm, I don't know. I guess I, as a photographer, I heard so many times that, like, like whether it was at summer camp or getting to work with the magazines or getting into something, like, I heard from... Who I considered experts that might have been a little too cynical, saying that like and it wasn't everybody, but there there was a lot of you missed it. You've you missed it. Like it was so good ten years ago or or whatever. So like in saying this, I guess I don't I don't think anyone's missed anything. Like there's always gonna be opportunity and there's always gonna be a way to make something happen if you have a vision. But right now it is super hard to fundraise and and make a movie in my experience like that takes quite a bit of money uh our good friend joe carlino um who i've cut a few of the last films with uh really outlined that budget in a podcast with our friend grenier the bomb hole shout out. Uh, yeah, I would uh, give them yeah. an air horn. Grignier, yeah, Grignier and Stone and and Carlino talked about making the Nike movie. And Joe is epic at breaking down anything really. Like he's he's this he's this incredible mind that can sort of get into the details and and see them all in front of him. And I love the way I love the way he works. I lived with him for a little while and. Yeah, I feel like I'm always learning from Joe and I really appreciate his friendship, but he broke down the Nike budget, I think, for Never Not on that podcast and I think that's worth listening to because it really, it puts into perspective how much goes into making a film, which has been sweet to learn. Yeah, when, when Red and Sage and Ben and Runky and Kai and I were sitting in a room in SoCal talking about making Joy, like, yeah, we did embark on this path and like, learn what it takes to clear music and learn what it takes to go through color and audio. And luckily that was a fairly smooth process and we were able to, yeah, kind of get those tools and see how that works. And yeah, my partners have always been good at kind of doing some of the math. That's never been my forte, but I mean, there's so much that goes into making a film from any scale, whether it's a, a short piece or a, webisode or whatever you want to call it to the stuff that that rice and and those guys were making during that time like i've gotten to see some of the inner workings of most of the spectrum and i know for a fact that there's always more deeply more than what you see as the tip of the iceberg as a final process project um i think that like yeah right now finding funds and getting creative and making that kind of stuff work is yeah it's challenging and it always was challenging and it will always be challenging um from a state of the industry perspective there's a bunch of films i'm psyched to see i don't know we were down at our her neighbor Brad Holmes' Holmes's house the other night who worked with Danny and Elena and a bunch of people on the TGR flick. And John Jay has an epic part from what I understand. And a bunch of people worked really hard on that. And TGR has been pumping out films for a couple decades. And yeah, they, they brought in some legendary cinematographers and i'll let that Patch story it, yeah, unfold bringing itself, standard back. Like, <laughs> yeah we worked on a project with michelle and robin van Gin, our dear friend directing um a project for arcterics this year that'll come out and yeah there's all kinds of projects that are still getting made and then there's all kinds of edits on freaking instagram or whatever that come out daily that are inspiring and sweet in their own way like everyone's got a platform right now which is a really cool piece of the puzzle that didn't exist 15 years ago
0: yeah there's a lot more independent films
1: yeah there's a ton of content and all those people that are getting a window into the stuff that the top level's doing are inspired and the people that are down to go take it to the last mile and go to where it isn't crowded or the people that are making stuff right now and putting it out in any way that they can. And I think that that's like a really cool part of this era. And yeah. I'm psyched to see that progress.
0: Yeah, I think my one of my favorite films last year was with an Arc'teryx athlete, Max Chronic, And he self-filmed a bikepacking trip from Greece to Germany. And they had a filmer maybe for the first two weeks, and then I believe they filmed themselves, like, drone and all. And the artistic outcome of that film, and I'm going to put it in the show notes because I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it is so beautiful. And to know, I mean, I can't imagine. It was like, they self-filmed, so the like budget must have been relatively minuscule compared to a Travis Rice movie, but to see that kind of beauty come from that, like... It is really inspiring to me, and uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of good stuff coming out there. What are you shooting on right now? Camera, favorite lens?
1: Um, My favorite lens right now, it it feels crazy saying this because every year for the last 15 years, I would have said it's this 50mm 1.2 EF Canon lens that I took with me everywhere. Like, I wouldn't go home. I don't know. I wouldn't leave home without that. But um, they recently just put out a new camera platform and there's an rf 85 mil that i really like it's fucking huge and like kind of a burden in some ways but it's like it's a beautiful lens and yeah that's probably like that on a canon r5 and my like a q2 with a 28 mil Sumalux on it are like my two yeah pieces of glass that i couldn't live without on a shoot right now probably just couldn't live without right now forget a shoot like yeah that Leica comes with me everywhere I love that camera um but yeah the 85 is a sweet piece of glass I think that thing's the one
0: most memorable image and why
1: I don't really know there's so there's like there's too many fair the first one that came to mind was uh, ferg with like a nudie mag on this peak <laughs> in alaska or no in new zealand that we got dropped off on with like the helicopter in the that's background memorable, yeah he was like mad young too it was such a funny trip <laughs> but that's not that cool
0: yeah <laughs> Amazing. Um, Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know this is one of your first podcasts and it's an honor.
1: I never wanted to do this. Yeah. But but I I still, I guess I want to like exit with like big thanks to my current teams that I roll with. Um, I touched on it a little, but the energy on our crews at Burton right now are epic. I love what we are doing like in the backcountry and the way that We're bringing people in and the way that we're making people feel and like I don't know our team management and the people that I'm working with over there have been really epic and it's a dream totally a kid's dream come true to be able to roll with that crew and yeah to be working alongside Blotto and those guys is is everything to me and then just to everybody that I've gotten to sleep under their pool tables or couches or worked with in any capacity, whether it was coaching or interning at the studio or anything. Um, yeah, right up to the contracts that I've been fortunate enough to have over the years. I just, yeah, I'm like super thankful. I guess like, I would have been really nervous about this, and I never wanted to do one of these, but I just want everyone that I've worked with and that helped me along the way to be thanked. And that's, makes me not nervous to be able to be saying that at the end of this
0: yeah I love that and thank you for inspiring me to pick up the camera and go out there to these wild places and take photos and thank you for your partnership and everything that you bring to my life and and so many other people that you've touched you are one of the kindest people I know so I really appreciate your time thanks for joining us